I was telling uh, David and Chris in the back that uh, I'm going to let them follow that song, not me. Wow, what a, what a powerful song. I wish Beth could get it out there where you could hear it, though. <laughs> I just wonder where she gets that loud mouth from. It's got to be her mother. You know what? Very, very powerful. I, uh, as a preacher friend of mine once said, a guy I greatly admire and taught me so much, if that song doesn't light your fire, you're working with wet wood. Let you meditate on that for a moment. Let me remind you about something for next week. Next week, obviously being Easter, we're going to have two services. First one will be at 9.15, the second one regular hour at 10.50. If you're coming at 9.15, please be here on time so we can uh, get done. You know how the preacher is. Sometimes he tends to be long-winded. So be here at 9.15 so we can get done and clear the parking lot for the 10.50 group. So, again, next Sunday, 9.15 and 10.50. Now, briefly... Uh, anybody need a Bible? We've got some in the back. If you happen to need one, I don't know that uh, may turn the lights up a little bit make sure. If you happen to need one, just raise your hand, and Chris will be glad to give you one if you need it. Take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. And or your mobile devices. Now, do not be looking at March Madness on your mobile devices. I'm sure most of you have a pretty pristine bracket at this point, right? I think Middle Tennessee State probably ruined that for everybody. Got to be happy for them, though, don't you? As David mentioned earlier, we celebrate today as the Church of Jesus Christ Palm Sunday. Fascinating moment in the history of the world. It began on a Sunday, first day of the week, leading into that we call it Passion Week the last week in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. From Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, to Easter Sunday, we celebrate next week his resurrection. And there's a, there are many reasons, and we'll talk more about that next week, why it's called Passion Week. But it's fascinating to me to understand and remember as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that this begins the most significant week in the history of the human race, when God in the flesh goes to Calvary and then rises from the dead. The significance of that week in our lives, even today, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as his church, as his body, as the chosen institution through whom he says to the world, I am. We've talked a lot about this in our series, why this matters. And it's really important, I want you to understand the significance. On Palm Sunday, Jesus, in fulfillment of prophecy, comes riding in on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and the crowds are throwing out the palm leaves in his path, and they're throwing down their clothes, and as he's heading into, they're just a huge throng of people screaming, Hosanna! Hosanna to he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! They're praising him, shouting, repeating Old Testament scripture to the Messiah. But what's really interesting as you read that in Matthew 21, and it gets to the end, and all the crowds following him, and they're shouting Hosanna, and at the end it says, people were saying, who is this? And they said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. 
Those same people who were screaming Hosanna in the highest did not understand, even though they were screaming it, he was God in the flesh. He was the Messiah. He was the one come to redeem them, the Savior of mankind, the foretold one, the Messiah. Because four days later, what's a, what are those same people screaming? Crucify him. Crucify him. Because the Jewish leaders had convinced the Romans that he was making himself out to be king over Caesar. And so they manipulated the populace, the Jewish populace, into screaming, crucify him, give us Barabbas instead. Why? Why is this significant? You'll notice again our series, because truth matters. I want to read to you just briefly from two things that the Apostle Paul wrote, why this is so significant. From 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last thing Paul wrote before he left the planet, his last will and testament, his passing on to his protege, his son in the faith, to carry on, to guard the treasure of the gospel entrusted to you, Timothy, pass it on to faithful men who will pass it on to others. He writes these words. Timothy, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine or teaching, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So Paul tells Timothy, understand the significance of the gospel, this incredible treasure that's been entrusted to you and entrusted to others because the time's coming and indeed already was there when they're not going to listen. They're going to listen to the latest that comes along and how cool it sounds and how it makes them feel. They will heap up, pile up, amass for themselves teachers who will say what they want to hear that will make them feel good and they will flock to them even though what they teach are fables. That's called the church age. And by the way, is that relevant today? Man, is it ever. And it will be relevant until Jesus Christ returns. We are in that same age that Paul was talking about. It began when Jesus left. It will end when he comes back. And constantly our, our culture is bombarded with people who stand up and declare, thus saith the Lord, and then everything they say has nothing to do with what the Lord has already told us in the Word of God, which is that's where the truth is. That's where that thing that's so special. And then Paul also wrote to the church at Ephesus and said this, it's important that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. It is important for us, the church, to understand who's the head of the church. It's Jesus Christ. We are his body. Everything flows from the head in your body. The Bible says that you think in your heart, so you are. You don't do anything until your brain says do it. That's why God chose that metaphor, so we'd understand it. Christ is the head. We surrender to anything that he wants, and we need to understand. And Paul was very clear to the church at Ephesus, and the writer of Hebrews was very clear when he wrote, what they were saying, both were saying to the church is, it's time to grow up. You shouldn't be children anymore. 
tossed about by every wind of doctrine and who, the latest thing that comes along and whatever the trickery of is men. You, you need to know the truth of the word of God, surrender to that, and live your lives in light of who is the word. Jesus, his word, would have us be. That's why this is important. That's why we're doing this series leading up to, as we end it next week, with the one who rose from the dead, who conquered sin and death. So what we're going to look at today is Jesus' triumph. Palm Sunday is his triumphal entry into Jerusalem to go to the cross. And on that incredible moment, as he dies, you see him say something you never see him say any place else in his earthly ministry as he hangs on the cross, taking the sin debt of the entire human race from Adam forward, as he hangs on the cross, dying for us, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You never see Jesus any other place refer to God as God. He always refers to him as what? Father. Father. Because at that moment, this is how much he loved you, me. At that moment, he was taking my sin, taking your sin, taking Hitler's sin, taking the sin of every human being that's ever walked planet Earth and put it on my back because he alone could satisfy God's demand. He alone could pay a price for a debt that I owe. I can't pay it. I could never be good enough. That's why the Bible makes it clear. There's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is Jesus. He is the Christ the Messiah, the Savior. So what I want to do, what I want to look at today is when he comes in on that Palm Sunday, as he's heading to the next Easter Sunday, an incredible resurrection from the dead, that triumphal entry, he's coming to die for the sins of man and then to rise from the dead to conquer sin and death, the exclusive, we talked about this the last couple of weeks, why could Jesus claim exclusivity? Because he is the great I am. When he says I am, the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's exactly what he meant. I am. I'm the same God that spoke to Moses in the burning bush. I'm the same God that walked in the fire furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm the same God that told Moses, walk across that sea on dry land. I'm the same God that stopped the sun for 24 hours. I am the door. I am the gate. I am the life. I am the water. I am everything you could ever want, need, or desire. I am God. Now, there will be many others that come and still are that claim to be God or have a way to God. We talked about that before. But Jesus said, there is no other way. And I love the beauty of that great metaphor that was spoken years ago. That at the foot of the cross, we're all equal. Okay, who you are, there's not many roads to the top of that mountain. There's one. It's called the cross. The mountain's called Golgotha, and you want to get to the presence of God, you go through the cross. There's no other way. That's why it's so important that we understand that. We live it. We share it. It has to be our motivating reason for everything we do. So let's begin to look. Number one is Jesus triumphs in his triumphal entry over death and resurrection. Notice on your handout, number one, 
Some of this we hit at, he hinted at last week, so I'm going to hit it quickly and move on. Number one, he removed the sin barrier. He removed the sin barrier. We saw last week, for all of sin, fall short of the glory of God. Pretty simple. All is every human being that's ever walked planet Earth. Adam and Eve calls that for us, brought it to us. That's the way it is. My granddaughter, two years old, as cute as she is, and I realize she's the cutest two-year-old on planet Earth. I know that. You know it, too. That's a cute baby right there, but I'm sorry. Bill's going to get me afterwards. I know. Aurora's already thinking. That's it. I've had it with him. Now, she's a cute, Lydia's the cutest little thing running around. She's, she's so special. I love children. I love being a grandfather. But you know what she is at the root of her being? I hate to tell you this. For those of you that have cute little children, that cute little baby right there is a filthy, rotten sinner. And we don't think that way. If you don't believe the Bible is true, just watch them for a little while. Hey, when Lydia wants something, what does she want? She wants what Lydia wants, and she really don't care what you think. You're going to do it, or she's going to throw herself down on the carpet and pout. That's what she does to get her way. I just let her lay there. I think it's funny. I told you a few weeks ago, she goes to the refrigerator and stands there, stares at the refrigerator and says, Cheese! 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 Now, how long will she stand there and say cheese? Because somebody opens that refrigerator and gives her a piece of cheese. They have these little things, they're called grabbers. You know what grabbers are? If you've got children, you probably know what they are. I don't know what they look disgusting looking, but they got these little things called grabbers where you give it to the, the, the toddler and they, they squeeze and they get nutrients out of them. Well, she calls them purples, blues, reds based on their color. So she just goes to the cabinet where we have them, points to the cabinet and goes, purple. Why? Because she's selfish. She wants what she wants. Now, you don't do it that way, but basically that's what we are as human beings. We're selfish. Now, that sin, we're born that way. We have no option. Adam bought that for us, and I appreciate him. When I get to heaven, I'm going to thank him. Appreciate it, man. You're in the Garden of Eden. You can, you can, come on, man. You can't behave. He bought that for us. That's why Jesus had to come. He removed the sin barrier for all of sin and falls short of the glory of God. No matter what you do, you can't reach. You know, we used the illustration last week. God reached down because you can't reach up and get to his presence. So that barrier brought sin and death. Now notice on Mark 15 on your handout, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, the Roman centurion said, truly, this man was the son of God. And the, the whole point of the veil in the temple being torn in two, and I know many of you know this, but it's a great understanding. When you go to the Old Testament, you go to the tabernacle, you go to the temple, you had two, two primary compartments. You had the holy place, and you had the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And the only time anybody went into the holy of holies was one day of year on the day of atonement. The high priest went in there to make sacrifice for the sins of the people on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant called the mercy seat. He would sprinkle the blood to atone for the sins of the people. Nobody went beyond, and, and the barrier to the holy of holies was called the veil. It was a huge curtain. Thick mammoth. Nobody went beyond the veil. There was no artificial light in the veil. It was illuminated by the Shekinah glory of God. And the high priest went in there one day a year on the Day of Atonement, 
They literally, he could never sit down because if he violated God's presence, he was struck dead and they dragged him out. He never sat down because his work was never finished. It had to be done every year. So when Jesus dies on the cross, that, veil, that curtain was called the veil. When Jesus dies on the cross, in the temple, that literal veil was torn in two from top to bottom, what was, and there was an earthquake. What was God saying? There is no barrier to my presence. Jesus bought you. And you read it in the writings of Paul throughout the New Testament, what Jesus bought for us on the cross and the ensuing resurrection was direct access to the presence of God anytime we want it, and we don't have to go through a high priest. We go ourselves because we are priests. Every believer is a priest. That's what Jesus bought. He removed that barrier. If I want to be in the presence of God, I simply pray. I, as a believer, am in the presence of God all the time. Secondly, his triumphal entry, his triumph over death and resurrection, he paid the sin debt. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. That Greek term, it is finished, it's an accounting term that means that this debt is stamped, paid in full. It is finished. The most significant moment in the history of the human race, that and the resurrection, right there. The great eternal plan of God, pictured for us in Genesis 3.15, after original sin, when God said to Satan, the seed of the woman is coming and you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. You'll bruise his heel at the cross, he'll crush your head at the resurrection. It is finished. Nobody will ever have to die for sin again. No other priest will have to sacrifice an animal. No other blood has to be spilled. It is finished. This debt is paid. I simply by faith come to Jesus Christ, just like the thief on the cross did. What did he say to Jesus? Would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? I believe you are the Messiah. What did Jesus say to me? Would you get down and go give some money to the bus fund at the church? Would you get down and get baptized? Would you get down and take communion? Would you get down and do some good works? Would you get down and clean yourself up? What did Jesus say to him? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Today, you go to heaven. Because when you're crucified, you die. You're tortured to death, you die. Jesus said, when you die, you're going to be with me. And all the thief on the cross did was say, I believe you're who you say you are. He trusted Jesus Christ to save him. Same way you got saved. Same way Abraham got saved. Same way I got saved. Jesus removed the barrier. He paid the debt so I could be saved. And then finally, he satisfied God's demand. We talked about the word propitiation last week, and I want to hit these verses because this, you see the word in all these passages. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, John writes. He himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, before the whole world. The word propitiation means to satisfy a demand. Propitiation in Scripture means Jesus satisfied God's demand for somebody to pay the price. He satisfied. Man had tried, still is trying, to earn his way to God. And the only possible thing that satisfied God was the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. That was the propitiation. That was the satisfaction. That was the one thing 
that God would say, I'll accept that. Propitiation. Paul writes, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. The blood of Jesus Christ satisfied God's demand. Without the blood, there is no remission of sins. Jesus' blood, the final sacrifice, satisfied. And then John also writes, in this is love. Not that we loved God, we could never love God enough, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent his son. So Jesus triumphed over death in his resurrection. We celebrate that next Sunday. So what I want us to focus on today is in Colossians 1. Would you turn there to verse 15, please? If you haven't already, 115. Jesus triumphed over death and resurrection, and then his triumph over all. All. All that would come against him, all that's out there, his triumph over all. Colossians 1.15. Christ, 115, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is the image of the invisible God. I read a cute story about this this week. This little boy was sitting down, a little three-year-old boy was with his dad. They were sitting around in the, in the kitchen, and the little boy was drawing a picture, and, and the daddy said, son, what are you drawing a picture of? He goes, I'm drawing a picture of God, daddy. He goes, well, son, nobody knows what God looks like, and he said, they will in a few minutes when I get through. I just love that. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Here's what Paul was doing for the church at Colossae and for us to understand, particularly in the culture that he writes in. He wanted to make sure that Colossian believers understood who Jesus was, to grow up, we saw a moment ago, to mature, and to deal with the false teaching that was rampant in their church about the deity of Jesus Christ. Remember the great Christmas carol that we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing? I'm not going to sing so you, you can relax. In that Christmas carol, one of the, I love the theology in Christmas carols, but particularly that one. Hark the herald angels sing, and it talks about in their veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. What Charles Wesley was writing was, when you encounter Jesus Christ in the flesh, you are encountering deity. Think about that for a moment. And then think about historically what happened. If you encountered Jesus Christ, you were encountering God in the flesh, interacting with God in the flesh, particularly people like Peter, James, and John, his intimate circle for three years, yet when Jesus needed them the most, where were they? Denying him and abandoning him. They spent three intimate years with God in the flesh, and yet they, that's how... You think our sin nature is not powerful? You think Satan is not really good at what he does? 
For all have sinned and fall short. That's why Jesus had to do what he did. Because we're sinners. And even though they were that close to him, they still denied him and let him down. Just like you're going to do and I'm going to do. Because we're sinners. So he says, overall, Jesus is over all creation. Very significant we understand that. He wanted the Colossians. He wants us to understand. To see, to know Jesus is to see and know God. You haven't seen Jesus, but you know him if you're born again, and you know God. He is the firstborn over all creation. The term firstborn, because the Jehovah's Witnesses and other cults like to take this term and say, see, Jesus was born just like anybody else. He's no different. Special, but not, he still was created, a created being. That's not what the word means. Firstborn here means the heir, the owner, the possessor, the highest and the first rank in priority. And the context is, he is creator, not a created being. Look at verse 16. For by him, Christ, all things were created. He is the possessor, the owner, the creator of all things. For means because. Because he is the creator, he's not part of creation. He's outside creation. He's the eternal second person of the Trinity who came in flesh to die for the sins of the world, but he's always been God. God the Father, God the Son. That's why God says, you see at the transfiguration, at the baptism, you hear the voice of the Father, you see the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove, Jesus is being baptized, and you hear the voice of the Father say what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am what? Well pleased. Well pleased. Because he is God. When Jesus is getting ready to leave the planet in John 17, he's getting ready to pray. He says, Father, glorify yourself with the, with the glory which we had together before the world was. Prior to the universe existing, what existed? The only self-existent, eternal being that's always existed is God. Jesus said the glory we, plural pronoun, had together before the world was. In perfect love, harmony, and fellowship was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We, let us, create man in our image. One God, three persons, eternal. So Jesus is not, even though he was the greatest man that ever walked the planet, he wasn't just a man. He was the God-man, creator. It was his universe. For by him, all that was created. Notice the end of verse 16. Through him and for him, he created all things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, authorities. In other words, the president of the United States, the authority ultimately over him is the sovereign God of the universe, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the creator. He is, it's through him, he's the agent of creation, and it's for him. All creation was created to glorify God, specifically God the Son. It's fascinating when you study this. We did some of that earlier when we began this series about having, having, having to prove there is a God. The best way you do it is by creation. 
He even created things like electricity or the, uh, the fact that we can have electricity. The kite that Benjamin Franklin used and all that. The, the, the brain that allowed that to happen. Where'd that come from? Where'd the intellect come from? The capacity to, to understand that, that force that exists. He created it. He created things like concepts, thought, emotions, attitudes, grace, mercy, truth, love, life. Those are all God concepts that he gave to us. Creation exists to glorify him. Verse 17, things, all things. He is before all things. What that literally means is he's outside creation. You want to get you a headache, just stop and meditate on the fact that Jesus is here right now. God is here right now. He was creating the universe somewhere back there. He's also in Thursday. He's also in next week. He's also at the second coming. He's also at Armageddon. He's also in the eternal state. He's in all those things simultaneously. He sees them all simultaneously. And he still made you. And he made me. Why? Because he loves you. You were created to glorify him. He is God over all things. He is before all things. He's outside creation. He existed before creation. In him, notice verse 17. It's a very important phrase. In him, all things consist. He is the sustainer of the universe. For example, if you study matter, just the concept of physical matter, science will tell you matter is, by and large, is primarily just space. Space. Well, what holds it together? What holds something together? What keeps our little planet called Earth from just flying off into the sun? Jesus Christ. He's a sustainer of the universe. He not only created it, he allows it to exist. Remember when you were a kid, you used to sing that thing, he has the whole world in his hands. You want me to sing that one? He got the whole, no, I won't do that. He got the whole world in his hands. Not, hey, by the way, that's not just planet Earth. Read the, the account in Genesis of the creation. Powerful. He creates this on day one. He creates this on day two. You know when he gets to the stars, and our sun is simply one star, when he gets to the stars, how does the Bible say God created the stars? Let me give you a direct quote. He made the stars also. Oh, stars. Boom! Incredible. Yet he knows every single star. I've told you before when I was a kid, you remember laying in my yard because I was kind of crazy. Still am. But I'd lay in my yard at night. I still do it now. Don't tell anybody. They'll throw me out of Arlington. But I like to go out at night. Remember when you were kidding? You like, I'm going to count the stars. I got it this time. I got it. One, two, seven, five. Well, wait a minute. One, two. Just we think. We emote. We realize there's something bigger than us out there, and that is God. He created it. He created you. The capacity to do that. And he's got it all. He's a sustainer of it. He created it, and he sustains it. The great Dutch theologian put it, and I'll read you this quote because it, it moved me when I was studying it this week. Abraham Kuyper wrote these words. When Jesus looks at his universe from his exalted throne at the right hand of his Father, and he sees the great galaxies whirling in space, the planets and the people upon this planet, and all the minute details of life here, including the details of our individual lives, there is nothing that he sees anywhere 
of which he cannot say, mine. End quote. Jesus looks at the universe and says, mine. He looks at you. He looks at me and he says, mine. One of the things I love about when you study Jesus ascended, which is the right hand of the Father, the Bible says Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And you get this picture that, that Satan comes before the throne of God, the Father, to accuse Randy Lockley of some, something stupid that Randy's done, which occurs on a regular basis. And Jesus is right there to say what? I got him, Dad. I got him. He's mine. He's mine. My blood's covering him. He's cool. I got him. I hope that excites you about who your Savior is. The entire universe is his, and yet you're more important to him than anything else that he ever created. He didn't become a fish. He didn't become a goat. He didn't become a dog. He became you and me and died for our sins. He triumphed over death and resurrection. He triumphed over creation. He triumphed over everything. He, tri he triumphed, triumphed, I'll get it out, over death. Look at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminent. Preeminence. I hope you understand this verse, 18. The focus then switches from creation, from every concept any man could ever think of, any authority, any power, any thought. Then his focus is he's the head of the church. The church, the most important thing to Jesus Christ. You realize God uses metaphors for a reason. The church is called his bride because we love our bride. We can't wait to be with our brides. We want to spend time with our brides. It's the most precious thing in our life is our bride, our wife. Jesus says we are his bride. When we get to the eternal state, all of us get there together. What's the great celebration called in heaven, the eternal state? The marriage supper of the Lamb. We are his bride. Church has a unique role in history, has a special role, a significant status. The church is not a religious country club where we all get together and have a good time. The church is not a bunch of ignorant religious fanatics like the world thinks we are. We are the chosen bride of the God of the universe, and he loves us unconditionally, sacrificially, and perpetually. We are his body. He is the beginning. He created the church. He is our life. He's the firstborn from the dead. He rose from the dead, firstborn, first fruits. goes all the way back to the Old Testament so that we will rise from the dead one day. The celebration where the priest will come out and wave the first fruits of the harvest to say what? There's more coming. The Bible tells us Jesus rose from the dead and became the first fruits of those who would follow. That's us. When we pass away, we know we're going to be resurrected. That's why Christians bury their dead. It's a symbol of resurrection. New life now, eternal life forever. We're raised in Christ. Romans talks about that. When you get saved, you're raised to new life. Just like he died and rose, you die to sin, 
You're raised to new life in Christ. And he is preeminent over all. It's the only place, that verse there, it's the only place in the New Testament that word is used. Right here. That he is preeminent. And it means his position is greater than anything else. And particularly the focus is on the church. That's why in Philippians the Bible says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is what? Lord. That means master of all. Every knee. I know I went to Overton and I went to the University of Memphis, but I believe every knee means how many knees will be left out. Zero. Every knee will bow. Adolf Hitler is bowing before Jesus Christ as his judge, as Lord God of all. Every human being that ever walked planet Earth will bow to Jesus Christ. We as believers bow before him as our Master, Savior, Lord. Non-believers bow before him as their, etern his, their eternal judge because he is. We talked about that last week. Finally, verse 19, he's the fullness. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Please the Father. We talked about that earlier. By the way, in Greek, this simply means the sum total of all the divine power and attributes of God are in Christ. The permanent home, the essential being of Jesus Christ is there. So look at number three on your handout. So Jesus has an exclusive offer. You cannot get anywhere else. I hope we've, we've reached that point. You, you got that. He has an exclusive off offer. You cannot get anywhere else. He offers you grace. Every other religion on the planet that man's ever created offers works. Work your way, work your way. Hope you get there. Jesus said, you'll never work enough. I'm going to give it to you. I did the work at Calvary, so you can't do it. You cannot work your way into redemption. It's the free gift for God so loved that he gave. He offers forgiveness versus futility. Here's my point with that one. If I'm trying to work my way to heaven, how do I know I'm ever good enough? How do you know you've ever done enough? You would constantly be frustrated, right? And understand it's futile. I can't do enough. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Forgive them. He bought my eternal life at Calvary. He paid the price, he shed the blood, he gave his body, and then he rose from the dead so I could have forgiveness, not a futile existence. Third, peace versus guilt. Mercy versus punishment. He took your punishment because God is a God of mercy. He put it on Jesus' back so it wouldn't have to be put on yours. Hope versus fear. I don't have to fear God. He is my daddy in Jesus. My daddy, Abba Father. Hope. Joy versus turmoil. In Psalm 103, the Bible says these words, and it's at the bottom of your handout. You might want to go read it when you get home, but it says this. Sums up Calvary for me. So just look up here if you would. God has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west. In other words, when I come to Jesus Christ, God forgives me and he remembers it no more, the Bible says. 
east from west. It's not brought up again except by Satan. And then Jesus said the blood covers that. Jesus changes people in a way no other God can because there is no other God. I'm going to share a true story with you and then we're going to pray. Just hang with me for a second. This is such a beautiful picture of what God can do. At the end of World War II, my dad fought on this island. That's why I love World War II and I love to study it. And my dad fought on Okinawa, Wake Island. He was in the Pacific and, and uh, guys, and I remember my dad would never talk about it. A lot of, I have a friend still alive at 95 years old. He fought and he won't talk about it. Just it's an interesting generation. But as when the American army got to Okinawa at the, toward the end of the war, war, they found all, they would go from village to village and they found, and I'm reading this so I want to make sure I get it right, unbelievable poverty, ignorance, and filth. And they came to this one village called Shimebuke. It was a small, obscure community, but it was different than the rest of them. The homes and the streets were clean. The villages, villagers were poised, cultured, and they enjoyed a high level of health, Happiness, intelligence, and prosperity. Why was Shimabuke different? 30 years prior to this, 30 years prior to the end of World War II, an American missionary was on his way to Japan, and he stopped there at Shimabuke just briefly, and he led two people to Jesus. Two people were converted. He left them one Bible and moved on. It was the only missionary that had ever been there. Two people were converted. In 30 years, the inhabitants of Shimabuke had made the Bible come alive. The two converts had taught the villagers its truth. Every person in that village had become a Christian. Then the American army came. And Clarence Hall, who was a war correspondent, wrote these words when he got to Shimabuke. I strolled through Shimabuke one day with a tough old army sergeant. And as we walked, he turned to me and he whispered hoarsely, I can't figure it, fellow. This kind of people coming out of only a Bible and a couple of old guys who wanted to live like Jesus. Then he added what was to me an infinitely penetrating observation. Maybe we've been using the wrong kind of weapons to make the world over. You see, Jesus Christ will change lives one at a time. We are his church. He is the preeminent one. When he rode in on Palm Sunday, yeah, he rode in on a donkey. When he comes back, he's coming back as the lion. He came in as the lamb to die. He's coming back as the lion to judge. We are his church. He triumphed over death, over all. I hope you're excited about who your Savior is. You see, next Sunday, why do we have to have two services next Sunday? A lot of people think Jesus is significant. They just can't figure out why. Because they sure show up at Easter, don't they? be funny because they'll all be dressed nice. They won't be dressed like the rest of us. <laughs> You'll know who the Easter's only are, right? They'll have on ties and coats. And... No, it's cool. I may even wear a tie next week. I don't know. If I do, somebody will think I'm going to a funeral. So that's on that long. But what we need to understand is God loves everybody. He loves those people that are only going to show up next week. We need to pray that when they show up, what do they hear? The truth about the one who rose from the dead who will change them forever.
It's not about whether you're at church. It's about whether your life has been changed by Jesus Christ. Because that's what brings you back. Bow your heads, please. Father, we pause before you as God. Just simply the fact you are the great I am. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he did come in on Palm Sunday, that triumphal entry. He came because if he didn't come, we'd have no hope. But he did come, and he did die, and he did rise from the dead so we can celebrate life every day in Christ. I pray for us as Christians, those of us here who are believers, we'd be excited about our faith in Jesus. I pray that. We'd share it. We'd invite people to church so they can hear the truth, so they can hear about Jesus Christ who can change them forever. We'd live it. We'd be excited about our triumphal Savior because he's God. Lord, for somebody here who's not sure, we just pray this would be their moment. Say, yes, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you. Please save me. Like that thief on the cross, would you remember me? I want to be saved. For all of us, we'd be thrilled about who Jesus is. Le leave here to share him with our world. We pray in his name. Amen.